Welcome to My Ed Expert, specializing in what's possible in education. By merging research, practice, and passion, we provide insights from top educational thought leaders for right now implementation. Now, here's your host, author Susie Pepper Rollins. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our topic today is about bringing a little bit of adventure into the math classroom. And we have the perfect guest, Jerry Burkhart. He sees students as questioners, not just human calculators. He wants math learners to use their imaginations to seek connections and look beyond the obvious. Jerry thinks of mathematicians even as artists who see the beauty in math. So he comes from a different perspective, and I'm so excited that he's here. How are you, Jerry? I'm doing great, Susie. It's nice to talk with you. Well, you too. Let me tell everybody just a few things about you. Both of us have been in education for a really long time. Jerry started his early years as um, working in a college with students who'd had some hit some bumps along the way in math, maybe weren't that successful, um, and made them successful. And he also, for many, many years, worked in elementary and middle school, largely with gifted and talented. And the last, I don't know, close to 10 years or so, Jerry works with school districts um, to build challenge, depth, and adventure into math. He has a series of math books for Proofrock called uh, Advanced Common Core Explorations, and he's the founder of 5280 Math. Did I get all that right? That sounds perfect, yes. Okay, super. Yay me. All right. So first thing I want to talk about is you're obviously very passionate about math, and you look at math through a different lens as more of this adventurous kind of pursuit. Tell us a little bit about how you became so passionate about math. I'll to tell you the truth. I'm not honestly sure exactly where it came from. I don't really remember thinking of math as being my favorite subject in school until maybe around ninth grade or so. And I had this amazing teacher who was just super positive and energetic. And she just seemed to assume that we could all do it. Um, and I kind of lost my interest a couple of years later, as it turns out, when I had a teacher who just kind of sat at his projector and told us how to do everything. It was kind of strange because I got a good grade in the class, but I left it feeling like math just wasn't my thing, that it didn't make sense to me. And I decided actually to skip math as a senior and ended up starting out in music in college instead, thought of myself more, I guess, as an artsy kind of person than a math person. Um, eventually, I did make my way back to math when I decided I wanted to study space and astronomy and that type of thing. And I, I learned that I needed math to do this. And I ended up discovering that I enjoyed the math courses even more than the classes I was taking about, say, space and physics and stuff. I'm going down memory lane here because I tell you, I had the best high school math teacher. And it was funny because I remember walking into her room and it was Miss Wilson. And Miss Wilson was 117 years of age at that time. And I remember seeing her thinking, oh, gee whiz, great. You know what I mean? And I, and, and I learned a lesson at age 15 not to make assumptions because boy, was this lady the best math teacher ever. So Miss Wilson, thank you wherever you are because boy, was she a great math teacher. So you talk about the adventure in math, and and I'm not quite sure what you're talking about, but I've looked at a lot of your material, so I kind of get the gist. Could you share with our, our listeners, what do you mean by bringing some adventure into math? Well, I have to tell you, it honestly took me some time to learn to think of math as an adventurous thing, too. And I think a lot of it came from actually just my experience with my students. Um, as I was teaching them, it just seemed like a good way to talk about the learning process or whatever. So when I think about adventure in math, I really just think about adventure in general. I mean, you're, if you're on an adventure, you're going somewhere, you're doing something that's new and exciting, it's unknown and you're curious, you don't know what's going to happen. And because there are lots of unknowns, it involves taking some risks. And it's important to plan, 
But in the end, you know that unexpected things are going to happen. So you have to be you have to be flexible enough to just adapt to whatever comes along. So really, it comes down to those three things, I think. You're curious, you're willing to take risks, and you're flexible in your thinking. And, you know, those aren't really things that we usually associate with math when we think about math. But in my experience, when my students and I look at math this way, it just seems that we're a lot more successful and we have a lot more fun with what we're doing. You know, I just love that approach. And something uh, when I was reading on your site um, is, and boy, this this is something I talk about a lot and I think will resonate with a lot of us, is one of the things you talk about is the this cri- the critical nature of having confidence in math. And we know that students can lose that along the way. Many times around the middle school years when we become departmentalized, things move a lot faster. Where does it go? Because we were confident at some point, probably. Where does it go? And how can we help our kids get that self-efficacy back? Yeah, that really is kind of a confusing thing. And I I have to agree with you. And you mentioned it seeming to happen a lot in middle school. I know things sometimes begin earlier than that. Um, And I'm not sure exactly what the reason for that particular time period is. I mean, kids are obviously going through a lot of new things in their life in general. And confidence can be a big piece of that. Um, but there's no doubt in math, just like in many things, confidence is, is really everything. Um, if you believe you can't do it, it interferes with your ability to do it. And in math, of course, you know, it often comes along with quite a bit of anxiety too. And the brain just, it just doesn't really function well under those kinds of circumstances. Um, I don't, I think that in terms of teachers trying to help students gain confidence, A couple of the things that we can do are to change maybe some of the types of tasks that we use with them. Things that are more open-ended and are a little less threatening because they don't necessarily just have right and wrong answers all the time and that allows students to explore some of their own ideas and to test things out. And then I guess how we respond to things as a teacher as well. Instead of always talking about... um, even saying something like good job or something like that and responding to whether they did well or didn't do as well or got it right or got it wrong. Just the idea of this sort of human approach of just listening to them and just being really interested in the way they're thinking. So not necessarily trying to build them up directly, but just realizing that one of the most um, helpful things we can do with anyone is just to be interested in them. And it's kind of hard not to be confident if you can see that someone else is interested in your ideas and what you have to say. I love that approach. And I I know one thing that I try to watch and I mentioned in buildings is, and it's kind of in line with what you're saying, that we have to watch our own messages that we give out too. I I joke about sometimes parents will come in and say, well, I wasn't good in math. Grandma wasn't good in math. We got an Ancestry.com and traced our lineage all the way back a thousand years. You know what I mean? And we're not good in math. So we got to kind of watch. And sometimes I'll hear even leaders in buildings say, oh, you know, they're nervous about going in the math classroom. Isn't that funny? So you know, we want to maybe watch our messages too. So I love what you're saying about that with, with that. And we know in the math classroom, kids are worried about getting that one answer. And so with more open-ended problems, so pretty sage advice there, Jerry. Okay. So this is something we're going to talk about. that gets a little tougher. So I hit you some softball questions. Now, <laughs> now we're going to get some hard ones here. All right. Yeah, I think. Okay. So you're all warmed up now. One of the things you talk about is maybe let's go not not focus so much on the speed of math learning and a little more on depth. 
So, and you know, we're all in such a knot over our pacing guides and move it. And I got to get here by, you know, Thanksgiving and all that kind of stuff. Help us out with that. How, how can we focus more on the depth and, and just give us some guidance here, Jerry? Depth is kind of a challenging thing, I think, for us to, first of all, even understand what it looks like in math, especially because we tend to think of it as rules and procedures. Um, and so when we're talking about sort of the balance between speed and depth, first of all, if, if we're looking at speed, that can look like a couple of different things. There's like there's speed in the moment, you know, when you feel rushed to finish, say, like a time fact drill or a long homework assignment or to come up with an answer to a teacher's question in, in the classroom. And then there's also this sort of longer term kind of speed involved in covering a lot of topics in a short time somewhat like what you were referring to with our worry about standards and goals and all that type of thing. The thing to keep in mind is that really both of these kinds of speed rob students of the time that they need to make sense of the ideas that we're trying to help them learn. And I know as a teacher, it feels uncomfortable when you have these pacing guides and that kind of thing. And it's hard to just step back, I guess, and trust your students in some ways just to be able to think. In all honesty, if you take a little bit more time early on and develop that deep conceptual foundation and trust that students really can learn to think their way through these things, you get some of that time back later on down the line simply because they retain things better. They can take the things that you helped them learn earlier in the year and they can apply it to the new situations. And you find yourself spending a little less time going back and reviewing and that type of thing. So... It seems a little counterintuitive at first, but you can deal with the time issue in that way, I think. And um, the idea of depth itself, so, you know, if you're, if you're not going as fast, what, what's the alternative? What does depth really look like? Um, the main thing about depth in math, I think, is you can think of it as it's more about why than how. And it's all about seeing connections between different ideas. It always reminds me of a person um, I met once who told me that for her, learning math felt like thousands of leaves on a tree. It's like each one was a separate thing, and she had to learn and remember every single one of those leaves separately. And no one had ever really helped her see like the branches or the trunk or the roots, all those parts that hold everything together and nourish the leaves. So learning deeply in a lot of ways is about seeing those kinds of connections. And from myself, kind of practical day-to-day, -day, it just sort of looks like, instead of what do I do, it's more like what do I think? So sometimes I'll just reframe questions for, you know, for teachers and for students. And instead of asking, you know, is this the right answer? It's more like, does it make sense? Okay, that's beautiful. And I'm writing these notes because I love what you're saying about if we give them some time to just process, think, get some practice, and they're, they're probably going to retain it better. Then we, we push through, and then we start reviewing again. And it's kind of like students are saying that they hardly remember that we had this. You know what I mean? Right. Yes. You know, and, and that's more frustrating than anything to teachers, I think, is that, oh, my gosh, because we remember everything about it. How can they not remember? And, of course, they're also taking science and social studies and language arts and all that, and we're trying to – and so I just think that's wonderful advice there – Okay, Jerry has posted, we just posted this on My Expert. It's from his website. I want to thank him for sharing that with us. He has something on his website, which is called 10 Myths That Hold Students Back. 
And we just put it on our homepage, but you're going to find that on Jerry's website as well. And I just think there it's wonderful. And one of the two really uh, help us a lot that I, right out of the gate, one thing I love that you say on that is most people underestimate their math potential and that your math ability is changeable. It's malleable. I love that. So how important is that? And how can we spread that word to kids, parents, everybody that you can really be a good math learner? Well, I really do think that's exactly right. This idea that math ability is some special or strange magical thing that either you have it or you don't, to me, that's just one of the most damaging beliefs that we can have. Um, Here's what happens. I mean, if you believe that you're not one of those math people, then why try? Because in your own mind, no matter what you do, you're not going to get it. But on the other, and on the other hand, if you believe that you are a math person, even strangely, that can come with its own set of problems as well. Some people who see themselves as being talented in math, they believe maybe they don't have to work hard at it because they already have that ability. And in some cases, um, having worked with gifted students for quite a while, I find that they think if they have to work hard at it, that's some sort of sign that, well, maybe they're not as smart as they thought they were. So they avoid end up taking risks because it sort of threatens their idea of their being good at math. And so I've seen over time, and this is with all types of students, I've seen them actually grow in their math ability, not just their knowledge and skills. I mean, obviously, you, you know, as you learn new things, you have new knowledge, but actually their ability changes as well. And they do it by working hard and developing confidence. But a key thing is they do it on really meaningful tasks, on things that give them time and opportunity to really make sense of the ideas. So as teachers, we can go that direction. Okay, one of your myths too, one of your first ones is about procedural fluency. And this is something I see a lot in schools, and I'll bet you get a lot of questions about this. Um, you, you, you talk about this as one component of math, but what's the bigger, bigger piece of that? And what guidance do you give schools in terms of balancing fluency with bigger math understandings? Well, I have to tell you the truth on this. This is probably the number one challenge that the math education community and the researchers in that area are, are dealing with. And I don't think anyone has it all figured out, but it's certainly, it's part of what the common core is about. And the idea, you know, how things extend beyond just fluency has been honestly pretty well researched. I believe it was in 2001, the National Research Council published a book called Adding It Up, and they identified five strands of proficiency. Procedural fluency was one of them. But it was also this sort of conceptual understanding we talk about, um, the why piece, They call it strategic competence also, which is about problem solving. Then there's a reasoning piece. And interestingly, there's also what they call productive disposition, which is sort of a mindset thing about just believing that math is worthwhile to do and that that it's doable, something that you can actually do yourself. The interesting thing about the procedural fluency um, is that even though that's one of five equal strands, we probably spend 90 to 95% of our time in the classroom on that. And these five strands are really all of equal importance. And if you look at the document that talks about those five strands, 
the key piece they have in there is they have this picture of a rope with five intertwined fibers. So we imagine those five different things as not only being five things that kids need to have and to learn, but that they're all intertwined and they support each other. So when you teach someone conceptual understanding, that actually helps their procedural fluency, for example. And ironically, if you don't do those other four pieces of it, then not only do they lack that, but it does it's not there to support their learning all those procedures and remembering them, so they end up losing that as well. So as far as what districts need to do, I mean, there's just a whole world out there of people talking about this and finding ways to do it. Um, if you go on Twitter, you'll find there's a math education community having these conversations all the time. I recommend to districts that they just hook in to people who are around them who are experts in mathematics education, seek out that professional development. And um, if you want to begin by yourself in the classroom, just really begin listening to your kids and hearing what they have to say and sort of trying to build off their ideas. Well, speaking of professional development, this is a good place for me to find out. Where can people find you? Could you give us your website, your Twitter, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, you can find me at 5280math.com, so 5280math, in case you have problems remembering that. Um, just realize, if you drive into Denver, you'll see this sign that says 5,280 feet elevation. And so it's the Mile High City, and 5280math is Mile High Math. It's about challenging, adventuring math for kids. When you go on the site, the, page, the front page will just give you some general information and lots of resources. There's a contact link where you can reach me, and there's also a page that describes professional development that I offer. Okay, let me just tell everybody, Jerry's got a great website with a lot of free resources, and he's also shared some wonderful things on Myad Expert, um, but I, I love his website, and we're going to link that up for you. Um, okay, so let's talk, this is a tough one, and I'm throwing this at you because I get questions about this. I'm not sure I'm, I'm answering, I give my best answer. I want to hear your opinions on this. Let's talk about flexible grouping in the math classroom. I mean, we look at that formative assessment we're, we're putting our kids together to get some practice. What's your best guidance? Do we put our, our top stellar students, how do we mix them in? Do we let them work alone sometimes? What, what do you think on that? Well, I mean, at the risk of sounding kind of flippant about this, I, I think that the best answer to that question is, in some ways, just yes, we do all of the above. All the above. Um, all of these pieces are kind of important. They're it is a difficult topic because we're talking about equity here and meeting all kids' needs. And I know a lot of people are really uncomfortable about like grouping top students together, especially um, because it seems like you're leaving other students out. Um, and those are those are real and legitimate issues. Um, I think the key word that I I think I heard you mention was the idea of not just grouping but flexible grouping. Um, if we go back to what we were saying about this idea that ability in math is changeable, it's malleable, well, then it becomes kind of clear. I mean, the, the members of the, that top group will sometimes change. And from a practical you know, viewpoint, there will be a group that will be there pretty consistently. But we really need to be constantly watching for kids and for talent in places that we don't expect it and give them experiences that will develop their talent too. But in the end... There's so much to be gained, both from this mixed ability setting and from those times when kids can work together with others who are sort of thinking at that time at a similar level. 
um, that I really think kids need both of those things. For example, in the, um, in the mixed ability classroom, we often think we'd like to leave the brighter kids in there so that the other kids can kind of be inspired and get ideas and insights from them. Interestingly, I really think it works the other way around too sometimes. Those brighter kids can get different kinds of insights from kids who are struggling with the concepts because the bright kids will kind of skim over the surface of things sometimes. At the same time, that time that, say, your gifted or top learners spend talking and working with others um, who are thinking in similar ways is really crucial, but maybe in a different way than we often think. It's not so important that they go into a separate setting to be advanced into the next thing in the book or something like that. It's more being in a place, I think, where they can have conversations with people who are sort of thinking in similar ways at that time and who can challenge them to kind of push them in new directions. Okay, good advice. And yeah, I always talk about it as a flexible grouping. Like it's going to be different today than it is tomorrow. And I use a lot of sticky note problems, whiteboard problems. So we're always mixing it up. Uh, and sometimes I'll have a challenge station and, and that's going to look different. You're, you know, try those problems over there now. So I love what you're saying about that, in my opinion, anyway. So, okay. So I, one thing that I noticed on your site, and I want everybody to check this out because I'm so fired up about these. You have something called creative math prompts. I'm not a fan of the do now kind of thing. And I can tell from your site, I can kind of get an idea. I think that you're not either because I love these. Jerry has these things called creative math prompts. We're going to put a link to them. These spark creativity and conversation. He's got them for elementary, middle, and high. And could you tell us a little bit what these are like? They're highly visual. What, how do you use these, Jerry? There are a lot of ways to use them. Um, first, I'll just take a second and describe a little bit what they look like. They're, they're usually, they're just an image. So it could be a picture of something, a diagram. It could have numbers in it. Sometimes it can have words. But what it doesn't have is instructions. It's not telling you what to do. Um, so you can kind of use them in different levels. The simplest thing is probably simply to just stick this image up in front of your classroom and just ask students, what do you notice? What do you wonder? And just gather their observations and questions. And even if that's the only thing that you do with these things, you've already begun to sort of open up the whole process for them so that it can be focused on their ideas instead of you sort of explaining things to them. And the amazing thing is, I mean, they'll come up with some kind of goofy things sometimes, and it'll seem completely unrelated to math, but you're sitting here listening to them and you're just getting a sense of all these amazing things that are going on inside their heads. And it's just so fun. And it's the perfect vehicle for formative assessment because what's better than actually hearing directly, having them talk about their ideas in terms of helping you plan your instruction. So that's the simplest way. From there, you could keep going and you could just like have a nice 10 minute conversation off of it where you're kind of going back and forth with the kids you can build them into a whole lesson, you know, and just maybe have a series of a few prompts where you gradually sort of scaffold things up for them. And in the most extreme case, and really I think all the prompts can do this, you can build entire activities and investigations that could last weeks or even months because all of them are really designed so that there are so many questions that you can ask that it virtually never ends. Every time you learn something new, it leads to new questions. 
You know, I love those. And I was, when I looked at them, it even crossed my mind. I might even be able to use those and put them in a menu, you know, and let them choose to as part of their work and, and, and to write with or as a station. Uh, I, I just hope everybody, and again, we'll put a link for those, but those are so awesome. These creative math prompts that Jerry's built. If you had any, if you had a magic wand, you know, I just gave you that proverbial magic wand. You've been in a ton of classrooms. You've been a math educator forever. If you could just change or, or just tweak a couple of things in the math classroom to make it every student just a much stronger math student, what kinds of things would you do? Well, I guess um, a few things come to mind. I think one of the first things is something we had talked a little bit about before, which was this idea of providing kind of a mixture of opportunities for the mixed group setting and um more targeted and working with students of their own abilities. And the nice thing is we do have a lot of structures in schools now, or I think it's not always just the teacher having to manage this within her or his own classroom. I mean, we have like the response to intervention. People have all different names for this, like the smart hour, power half hour, um, wind time, whatever it is. These kinds of school settings where you kind of, you, you mix up the students in different ways so that Apart from your regular math time or whatever, there's this targeted time for students and their special needs. So that's just really a powerful thing. And the more you have those kinds of structures in place, it just really opens up the possibilities for you. Um, a couple more things. I'd probably focus on tasks a lot, I think. Um, I really do believe something you had mentioned before, that we really do underestimate the abilities of all of our students. And... These kids need to be spending lots and lots of time working on really meaningful tasks. And, you know, a lot of my experiences with bright kids, but this can be for everybody kind of at different levels of complexity, not tasks that are just like a few minutes or whatever, but tasks that take hours or days or weeks sometimes, depending on how old the kids are. Um, and they should really be challenging and open-ended and targeted to mass standards at the same time, not just sort of like doing the next thing in the standards. And honestly, that kind of work is a big part of my focus as a consultant is like creating those kinds of tasks and helping teachers with them. Oh, you've got some beautiful, your stuff is just so amazing, Jerry. I, I'm just such a fan. I mean, I'm trying not to gush here, but I'm such a fan of the, the things that you do. Okay. Another tough one. And, and you may not have a perfect answer of this. You probably won't, but I'd like your, your, your opinion on it. How much math practice? I know it varies by student and it's going to vary by what we're doing. What's your take on our students? Do you think getting enough practice to really get the hang of things? And, and the second one off, I kind of an offshoot of that is homework. What are you seeing? What are your opinions? What do we do with it? All that kind of stuff with homework. Yeah. And it, to me, those two questions kind of blend right together in a lot of ways because that's a, well, that's a lot of where kids are getting their math practice. Um, it's kind of interesting when we, we ask the question, how much practice should students be giving or should be getting? I think I would probably turn the question around a little bit. I'd probably just say that maybe the more important thing than how much practice is what kind of practice. If we, even when we ask the question, like how much practice should they be having, we're already kind of finding ourselves back looking through the lens of procedural fluency. This idea that kids just have to do certain things over and over again until they learn all the steps and they remember everything. And as soon as we start doing that, I think we do begin to run into trouble because there's so much more. 
So I think practice maybe needs to just look a little different than what we're used to. Of course, once kids have kind of gone through and developed the really fu- the real foundation and it's time for them to really start remembering procedures, they do need to go back and practice these things, kind of even in a routine sort of a way. There's no question about that. But the best kind of practice probably looks quite a bit different than what we're used to. You know, we think, say, for middle school students, it's like do problems 1 through 51 odd in section whatever. And so what they're doing there is they're spending a whole night working on a whole bunch of problems of the same kind of thing. And one of two things will often happen. Either they won't really understand it and they'll spend all their time just being frustrated and giving up, or they'll already understand it pretty well and they've just been doing the same thing over and over again and they're kind of bored with it. So maybe a better approach is to maybe, is not to give so much but each night, and this could be in the classroom or it could be homework, whatever you want, however you want to set it up, but kind of mix things up a little bit. A little bit of review of concepts from the past day or two. A little bit of review looking even further back. Maybe some previewing about a few ideas that are coming up. And the procedural part of the practice would mainly be on things that they've really already pretty much have under control and you're just keeping it fresh. But then some of the new stuff is like more thinking things through and trying to generate some of their own ideas about stuff that's coming up. How much is the right amount probably is going to vary a lot from student to student, and it's great to differentiate, but I think it would be really cool if we would spend time thinking a little bit less about how much and a little bit more about what kind. About what it looks like. Oh, well, I cannot believe how fast this time has gone. So I'm going to, what I'm going to do is, is list a couple of my key points. I'm going to summarize a little bit. And then if you'll maybe have uh, some, you, I'm going to let you think a little bit here, and you can have some parting words for our listeners of what you'd like them to take away from this. Um, meaningful task on your magic wand. Boy, that's, we know that the value of the task, if it's meaningful, the student motivation obviously increases. We can all be great math learners. I mean, we got to keep that confidence going and there are strategies we can do in the classroom to help those students. Um, and I think one of your big points today is really about we don't want to just sacrifice the depth of understanding in, to get that speed because we may end up kind of chasing our tail a little bit and ending up having to review more because they didn't get it or we thought they got it because we were just rushing through. And I'm really fascinated. I'm going to do some more reading on the things you talked about, about this balance between fluency and math understandings. And I love what you said about mixing up practice and maybe what kind of practice we're looking at with our students. I think that'll really help educators. Okay, you're on, Jerry. I took a lot of your thunder, but what do you want to leave us with? Well, I think I'm going to pick one thing because I think it's really important and it came up in the background of what we were saying, but not really front and center. If I was going to suggest to teachers one thing that can make a huge difference in their math classrooms immediately from day one, it's just to listen to their students' ideas. Of course, to do that, you need to give them tasks that allow them to share their ideas. But by listening to them, you do so many things. You begin to hear what's actually going on in their minds so that that will inform how you teach things and understand what their next steps are. And the really big piece is just by listening and being interested, you're making them feel like human beings who have something to offer and you're developing their confidence and you're increasing the energy in the classroom and you're doing all these things that help make math interesting, fun, and meaningful for kids. 
and adventurous. And you know what? That is the best thing you could possibly say. I, I love what you just said. Thank you so much for adding that. Jerry and I, we do not want to close this podcast without thanking every single educator out there for all you do every day. Combined, Jerry and I have about 742 years of experience in the classroom. I'm, I'm exact, I'm, I rounded that number, but you get the point. A lot of years. So there is simply no better job in the world than being a classroom teacher. And we're so thrilled that you joined us today. Join us every Wednesday for conversations with fabulous educational thought leaders like Jerry Burkhart. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jerry. Thanks a bunch, Susie. This has been a lot of fun. All right. Thank you. We are so glad you joined us on this episode of My Ed Expert. For more resources on the ever-evolving realm of education, head on over to myedexpert.com and get inspired by all of our authors' work through downloads, strategies, and best practices. While you're there, hop on to get updates right to your inbox because you don't want to miss a thing right here on My Ed Expert.